Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Today, I don't want to celebrate myself or even the church. As we prayed this morning beforehand, Hunter prayed that even if this church crumbles, we still have hope because our hope isn't in Gospel Community Church. Our hope is in God, and so um, who cannot fail, who never will fail. And so I want to celebrate his faithfulness today. And so with that, I'm just going to be honest up front and tell you guys, um, it, it's a day of celebration, but it's also been an emotional week for me and for our family. And so uh, just bear with me today. So a sermon is what you'll get. I'm not... Uh, not sure how intact it will be. So just to give you guys a little bit uh, of a backstory there, we've had a foster, I'll try to make it through this too, we've had a foster son with us uh, for the past six months. My wife always tells me, she's like, just cry, like you fight so hard to hold it back. I'm like, you can't unsee that. So <laughs> once I go, it's it's, there's... <laughs> Not a lot of redemptive quality in that. So uh, <clears throat> we, we dropped him off for his uh, first sleepover. They found a relative. So for six months, we thought he was just going to be with us. Like there was no relatives kind of involved. And so we've got very attached. Our heart is very attached to him. And we love him like crazy. And so now he's kind of moving towards transitioning out of our home. And so that happened yesterday. And so well, just a lot of tears yesterday morning. And I was just uh, telling our friends, we're hanging out with DJ Renee last night, that I'm just kind of emotionally spent. And so um, just prayer. As, as we dive in today. And so I, I want to say this in, in saying this, uh, or my purpose in saying this is this. I haven't been asked this by people in our church family, but I have been asked this by, by other people, like, what, does this change your mind about foster care? And I would say whole, wholeheartedly, absolutely in, in no way. And I explained to my wife yesterday, I was like, my struggle with that, though I want to be gracious in the response, is that um, by protecting my own heart or our family's heart from pain also prevents others from experiencing what love is. And so C.S. Lewis says this so well. He says, to love is at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around um, uh, with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, unpenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And I think in this process, it's, it's taught me, which I'm thankful for, is in opening ourselves to love others, there's a risk and a chance of hurt. But in that, what I'm reminded of is what we're celebrating today, is that though I can't make sense, as Spurgeon once said, of all that God's hands can, are, are doing, what I can do is trust his heart. So that's what I do today. You guys can pray with me. Sorry, I made eye contact with my wife. I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) God, you have been so faithful to our church and to this family, even as Ronnie said in a joke, but it's serious, God, that you take broken people and through broken, sinful people, you do a work of redemption. You save, transform, and heal hearts and lives. And it's not through us, ultimately, it is through you and your faithfulness, through your plan of redemption and through the gospel that has been given to you by a free gift of grace through faith in what your son has fully done, fully accomplished, and fully provided. This day, God, we want to celebrate the work that you've done in and through this church family. We want to celebrate 
um, the lives that have been awakened to the gospel. We want to celebrate the healing that you've done. And we want to celebrate the Father, you are good and you are faithful. And so we acknowledge that, we praise you for that today, and, and, and we remember that ultimately we see your faithfulness displayed in your perfect plan of redemption, where in the darkest moment of all of human history, your son is on a cross, not because nails have pinned him there, but because of your love for us, and ultimately for your plan to save, redeem, and rescue those that you've chosen. God, thank you for that, that we can see through dark moments in, in, in history, and in the darkest like the cross, you have a perfect plan you're in control and that you're good. So we love you. We celebrate your faithfulness this day. Teach us through your word. Um, humble us, correct us, heal us, and convict us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to continue in on our series this morning titled Saints and Society. We've been in Saint Society for several months now, and we've looked at different things throughout this letter to the Corinthians that Paul has written. Paul calls them saints. Saints actually means set apart or holy ones. And so Paul is saying, hey, you are now set apart. You are holy. And we understand this, that to be set apart and holy is not something we arrive at. It's a state that we're given by grace through faith in Jesus. So it is our starting place, not an arrival place in life. What Paul is addressing the Corinthians throughout this letter is, hey, since you have this new identity as a saint, which means you're perfectly holy and set apart in Christ, my encouragement now is this is what it looks like to step into society and live out of this new identity. And so don't live in hopes to gain an identity of being a child of God who's set apart and holy. You have become that by grace. Now live into it and enter into society. We've looked at different ways that this has played out in the Corinthian church and all the influence that Corinth had in, in the culture at that time. And we've seen that we have a lot of similarities with that here in Lane County. And what we have seen, and a big focus in this letter, is unity and the purpose of unity. Unity is a big thing. And today we're going to look at this, the symbolic meal. So we have two ordinances that, that, that we remember in church. And that is the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And today we are going to look at the Lord's Supper. Today we are going to look at this symbolic meal. And we're going to look at three parts of it. The, the symbolic meal is first, the meal of unity, humility, and celebration. That's the first point. The second point would be the meal that reminds us that the deal is sealed. And so this meal is, is a constant weekly reminder that the deal is sealed. And then last, the meal that heals or brings judgment. And so that's what we're going to look at. The symbolic meal. That's it. That's what we're looking at this day. The Lord gives us these two really awesome uh, ordinances that we get to celebrate each week that are so closely connected to just what we do in normal life. Baptism is one. We, we wash ourselves. We take baths. And so we're reminded of that. The other one is that we eat. And so today we're looking at this. Next week, Ronnie's going to walk us through uh, the importance of baptism um, for the saints. And so this morning, we're going to kind of uh, look at this uh, from, from zooming out and see what Paul's doing here and who he's addressing, and then we're going to zoom it in a little bit. So read with me if you would, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34. It's, it's, it's a big section here. So. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, 
Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not have been judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Again, we looked at last week uh, at, at head coverings. But, but what we looked at there is the ultimate principle that Paul is trying to address is actually about modesty inside of the church. So customs change, but the principle does not. R.C. Sproul says that if you're not sure what's a principle or a custom, treat something like a principle until you find out it's a custom. In the same way here, there's a lot of questions that have been asked throughout church history and through the last 2,000 years. But what is the principle that Paul is getting at? Is God is always in Scripture concerned about the heart. And, and, and the heart motive of what's driving things. And so these are some of the questions that have been asked around communion, that have been asked around Eucharist, that have been asked around the Lord's Supper over the past 2,000 years. Is it literal? Is Christ actually literally being transformed or, or are the elements being transformed into Christ's literal body and his bread? We would say no, but this is a question that's asked. Uh, another one is the doctrine that's called intinction. So should we dip before we sip. In other words, should we actually dip the bread into the cup and take it that way? This is something that people divide over and, and, and debate over is should we honor the doctrine of intinction or should we recognize it that way? Should we adopt the early church method? If you guys aren't familiar with the early church method, they would actually excuse anyone from the service at the time of communion that wasn't a Christian. So they would all leave and then the Christians would stay and take communion together. We're not going to adopt that. That's how the early church did it. Another thing, should we use wine or grape juice? Jesus did wine. What should we use? What should we call it? Should we call it Eucharist? Should we call it the Lord's Supper? Should we call it Holy Communion? And here's the thing. There is a lot of fighting around what is going on with the Lord's Supper in the text. And for the next 2,000 years, the irony is the very thing that the Lord is trying to show that this meal brings unity and it's, and it's a meal of humble celebration not a meal to be fought over. It is a, a meal that should unify saints, not divide them. And here there's a lot of division. And over things like this, there's a lot of division. But let me say this. The doctrine of how we understand communion is very important. And the doctrine of what we believe about it is important. But, but fundamentally, at the core of everything, what we must recognize about communion is this. is It's a remembrance and celebration of Jesus' death. 
that, 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 that unifies a body together, that comes around the, uh, this table, these elements together to celebrate all that he's done and all that he is provided. And it is a picture of what it looks like to love one another. And so if we first zoom out, then we'll see this, that this, this text is sandwiched. And what I mean by that is if you look at the beginning, first few verses, you see these words come together a lot. Look at 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Paul last week commended them. He was like, I'm proud of you in this. And this week, when it, when it comes to communion, he's saying, I don't commend you in this. Because when you look here, come together. It is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, so there, there, there we have this twice. When you come together, come together as a church. And if you jump down to verse 20, it says this. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So three times right there, it's about coming together. If you jump to the very end of this passage where we're at today and look at verse 33 with me, it says this. So then, my brothers, when you come together. And then if you jump to 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together. So the big thing is I don't believe this is a meal that should be taken alone. I believe this is a meal that should be taken inside of the local church, the gathered assembly with the family of God. I believe it's a meal that we are to take and celebrate together for those that have put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. There is a massive emphasis that Paul is putting on coming together. When you come together, when you come together, when you come together, the purpose is this, is when you come together as a church, this is when you take communion. There are many people who, and I was one of them, who, who take communion by themselves and, and, and they do this daily. I want to challenge that and let you be challenged by what God's Word says today. That I believe this is a meal. Jesus did not take it by Himself. He, he, he took it with the apostles. This is a meal that I believe is supposed to be taken in the presence of the body of Christ at the local gathered assembly, the church. This is, seems to be Paul's emphasis here. And it's a meal of unity. It's a meal of humility. And it's a meal of celebration. I'm going to say this, that it is a symbolic meal throughout because I believe that there is symbolism that is being used, but in no way do I think that diminishes what's taking place here. So the meal of unity and the meal of humility and of celebration is this, is that Paul is frustrated with what they're doing. And what they're doing is this, is he's saying, hey, don't you have houses that you can eat and drink in? When they're coming together, they're, they're actually treating this as like some massive meal that they're eating a lot or they're actually getting drunk. And Paul is saying, you have homes to go eat in. You have homes you can drink in. Go do that. When you guys come together in, in, in the local context, you guys are supposed to be uh, uh, gathering around the unity of Christ's death, proclaiming that and what He's done. What's actually happening in Corinth and what we can see here is this. Is there's levels of hierarchy. There's, there, there, there's, there's tiers. There's level of class. There's first class citizens and second class citizens. And so what's happening is that the rich are actually going and they're the ones getting all the food with their rich buddies and their rich friends, and then when the poor go in, there's actually nothing left for them to celebrate and take the meal with. And so Paul is opposing that. In Corinth, it was all about who you knew. It was all about name dropping. It was all about status. And this is a big part of their culture. We see this because there's a lot of division inside of the church about this. They're saying, I'm with Apollos, and I'm with Paul, and I'm with Peter. And in a lot of ways, they are uh, trying to attach themselves to some common worth in this shame culture. And, and Paul's like, no, 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 no. What, what you're doing, it's not the Lord's Supper. In, in fact, you're despising the church of God. The way you're doing it and, and, and the way that you're creating these subcultures of the poor and the rich and stuff like that, that is a disgrace. It is humiliating what you are doing. You are humiliating those who have nothing. That's what he says in verse 22. And Paul, I love it how direct he is. He's like, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. <laughs> He's so direct. Why? 
Because think about this, that this would have broken the heart of Paul, but it also breaks the heart of God because this meal is a meal of unity and of humility and of celebration in this sense. Is that what does the meal, this symbolic meal, point to? What does it celebrate? It's this. Is when we go and we take the elements of the bread and of the juice, they are pointing to something. They are pointing to the work that Christ has done. They are pointing to this, that, that, that we are all equal. So anyone that gets up out of your chair today, that walks to the table and goes to take communion, you are recognizing this, that, the, 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 that Christ has leveled the playing field, that anyone that stands up to go and receive the elements is stating this, that I am a broken sinner who cannot arrive into God's acceptance other than by the perfect work that Christ has finished through his broken body and his shed blood. It, 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 is, it, it is a meal of unity because we all gather around unified saying this we all share this in common we are all in need of grace we are all in need of christ's death we are all in need of christ what christ has done there's no one that goes to the table more righteous there's no one that goes to the table in less need everyone goes to the table and celebrates the meal with the exact same need completely broken completely lost completely hopeless in every way desperate upon what christ has provided and our problem is this is that when we go to think that somehow we need less grace then it makes us harder for lo- to love the other people at the table. You, uh, it, for instance, this week, when you go to the table and, and, you, uh, and you see other saints going to the table, it's, it's, it's meant to challenge our hearts and go, oh, I think I, I, I've seen what they've posted on Facebook. I, I, I think I've seen who they vote for, who they're not voting for. I've seen these things, and it's calling us to remember that those things are not central. What is central is what Christ has done and what he's provided for his bride. There is no one that goes to the table in less need. There is no one that goes in the table with greater need. What leads to torn relationships in Corinth is the same thing that leads to torn relationships now. It's not a high view of grace. It's actually a low view of grace. A low view of seeing our need for grace. And so what we actually do without even knowing it is when the two people that Jesus tells about go before the temple to pray, you have the one man who's looking down, beating his chest, saying, Lord, I'm unworthy have mercy on me and the other one all he can do is look at the other person and say lord i'm thankful that i'm not like him i'm nothing like him i'm thankful that i'm not like him and so in that what what we become when we think that we have somehow uh that we are in less need of anyone else gathered around that table is that somehow that we are a little bit superior and we are in less need of grace here's the reality we love loving easy people we love to love easy people and when we are brought difficult people in our lives, instead of seeing our own desperate need for grace, it's just easy for us to see how unlovable they are instead of the fact how unlovable we are, but yet God moved toward us. Toward us. This meal brings a ton of humility. Why? Because did you know that everyone that walks that meal today is an addict? <clears throat> Let me explain. Everyone is an addict. There are some that over abuse and use alcohol that are going to go to the table today. There are some that are addicted to success and wealth. There are some that are addicted to the approval of man, which is why you don't confront things in life or stand up for things, or you omit yourself from conversations you should be in because you love and you're addicted to man's approval. There are some that are addicted to control, which is why you try to plan out 10 steps ahead of everyone and everything so you can gain control over life. You control maybe 
your success, your bank accounts, and all these things, because that's ultimately where your trust is at in your control. You are addicted to comfort. Anything that presses up against your comfort, you push back against because you're addicted to a life that looks comfortable. You're addicted, uh, addicted to success or security. You are addicted to your own self-righteousness, which is why you would defend against anyone that brings any charge against you because you love your own self-righteousness. This is why we have problems in marriages is because we're addicted to how awesome we are. And so everyone that walks to the table today walks to the table with a ton of humility to say that everyone is walking to the table today as an addict who's in need for God's grace. Unity, humility, but also celebration. You have to hear this. When you get up out of your seat today and walk to the table, there's nothing about the elements that make you holy. There's nothing about the elements that make you right with God. When you get up out of your chair today, just like a bride who walks down the aisle on her wedding day, you see a, a bride uh, just adorned in glory. She's, she, she's covered, she's in white, she's made flawless. That's what God does to us through grace and faith in His Son. When we get up today, we're not going to the table to take elements to receive perfection. We get up out of our seats made perfect in Christ and walk to the table as a bride walks down the aisle flawless to go and celebrate with nothing in our hands but everything to receive. When you go to the table today, you're reminded that when you walk up there, you're not laying something down at the altar and saying, Lord, take this gift I have to uh, give you and let me take something from you. You walk up there with nothing in your hands to give and everything to receive, and that's how the kingdom of God works. We receive elements, and we receive these elements in the same way we receive grace. Go up there today and remember, it's not about what your hands have wrought, it's about what Christ has brought through his perfect hands who have purchased for us redemption. That's something we're celebrating. You don't have to get up out of your chair today and hang your head in shame or in guilt because you get up out of your chair today with full confidence and trust and faith. Again, not in what your hands have wrought, but in what Christ has brought and the redemption and the purity and the flawlessness he's given to you. You walk to the table and say, because Christ has done that, I can celebrate. But that's the meal of unity, humility, and celebration that we have. Paul gets into the doctrine. Verse 23, the meal that reminds us that the deal is completely sealed. Look at this. For I see from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You have to see this. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, all three gospel writers are, are pulling uh, their, their reader's attention to something, to, to, the, to the literal hands of Jesus. They're focused on what Jesus' hands are doing at the time they're taking communion. And, and what is taking place here is, is, is this, is this actual word for that, that we see in the text. For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. That's a Greek word that means hip here. Hip here. That word means on behalf of. We see Paul use it other times. In 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 3, he says um, this, that Christ died, hip here, for, on behalf of our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He also uses it in, in a famous uh, uh, verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For, this Greek word, hip here, on behalf of, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what is taking place here is... For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Paul's like, this is exactly what I received from the Lord. Now I'm giving it to you exactly the way that I received it. It's important. Every detail. 
that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And, and every scholar that, uh, that I've read on the subject would say the same thing, that this is my body is meant to be an action. This is my body. And, 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 and what, what Jesus would have done on the night he was betrayed is taken the bread and ripped it apart and said this. So what he's actually drawing your attention to is to see the action that he's doing. This. This ripping apart is actually telling of what's going to happen to me upon the cross. This is my body ripped apart for you on behalf of. I'm going to stand condemned in your place so that you can stand righteous before God. But he's saying, this, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be ripped apart as I'm ripping this bread apart. On the cross, I'm going to be emotionally ripped apart. We, we, we know something deep happens on the cross because he cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying this. On the night he was betrayed, while ripping the bread, this is what's going to happen to me. Why? Because in my place, are, he's saying this, that I'm standing in your place condemned and you can deliver over to me all of your sin and unrighteousness and through my body and through faith in me, I'm delivering over to you all of my righteousness. This little wafer that we take every Sunday, it has no little meaning. It has massive meaning for the church. When we take it, and, and, and we are called to bite down on it, we are called to remember that Christ was ripped apart, that his body was, was torn apart quite physically. He was flogged, he was scourged, and, and, and then he was taken to the cross, but also emotionally, spiritually, what Christ endured. He endured that for us so that we would never have to be ripped apart from the presence of God, but instead we could always be a child of God. Our problem is, is this. If you look at the last part there, he says this in 24. Do this in remembrance of me. Our problem is that we like to constantly spend our time remembering all the things we've done and haven't done from yesterday and the week of. We like to remember all of our failures and we like to remember all of our successes. Celebration is important. One of my favorite theologians, Steve Brown, still living, gray-haired man, says this. If there is no laughter, Jesus has gone somewhere else. If there is no joy and freedom, it is not a church. It is simply a crowd of melancholy people basking in a religious uh, neurosis. If there is no celebration, there is no real worship. The good news is that Jesus Christ frees us from the need to obnoxiously focus on our goodness, our commitment, and our correctness. Religious has made us obsessive almost beyond endurance. Jesus invited us to, to a dance. And we've turned it into a, a march of soldiers, always checking to see if we're doing it right and are in step and in line with the other soldiers. We know a dance would be more fun, but we believe we must go through hell to get to heaven so we keep marching. What is Steve Brown saying? That what we like to do is we like to spend our time remembering and focusing on the things that we've done. But, but what it said here is that what we're actually called to do is remember Christ's body that was ripped apart and that was torn. If we're drawing our attention to something and what Paul is telling us to draw our attentions to, it's not what your hands have done. The moment that we fail to believe that Christ has done everything that, we, that needs to be done in order for us to stand right before God is the moment we stop believing the gospel. I believe this is why we should reject what the Roman Catholic Church teaches on communion. This is what they say. The church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. 
I won't read all of what John Calvin says in response to this, but what Roman Catholicism teaches is that you go to the table to receive the elements and they infuse grace to you that is needed for salvation. What, what, what we believe is that all that is needed for salvation is everything that Jesus Christ completed and finished on the cross because in John 19.30, he actually literally says, it is finished. And so it's, it's not that grace is, is helpful. It's actually that grace is fully sufficient and that his body sealed the deal. And this meal is a symbolic reminder that his body was broken and the deal is sealed for us. And we're called to remember this. We're called to remember what He's done. But look at verse 25. He says this, in the same way also, we're looking at the second element now. He took the cup after supper and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He's saying the same thing. This is so important. He takes the cup now and He says, hey, this is a second element. This is a symbolic reminder of what I have done, what I have provided. Here's a big, 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 big thing in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is this. Is that an animal's blood had to be shed in order to pay for the sins of man. But that was a temporary thing because animals are temporary. And so this had to keep happening. But one of the biggest ways uh, that we see this blood in the Old Covenant is through the story of the Exodus. And so what we actually have in the Exodus account is we have them slaughtering a, a, a blameless lamb and then taking the blood of the lamb and, and putting it above and on the sides of the doorpost. I've made mention of this before, but if you go back and read the Exodus account, what you don't see the angel of death doing is creeping open or popping open the doors of these houses and peering inside and seeing what's going on inside the houses. The angel of death isn't looking in to see if families are arguing. He's not looking in to see the level of faith. He's not looking to see who's addicted to what. He's not looking to see, and the author's not drawing us to see what's going on inside the houses. The author's intent is to get us to focus that there's either blood on the doorpost and on the head of it, or there's not. And what does the angel of death do? He looks and either sees the blood or he doesn't. And when he doesn't see the blood, the wrath comes. When he sees the blood, he passes over. In the same way, when God looks at us, what he chooses to see when we put our trust and faith in Jesus is not every detail, all this, all that we have and haven't done. What God chooses to see through faith in his son is the blood. And his blood is eternal, meaning this, that it covers and seals once and for all eternally. His blood forgives, his blood cleanses, his blood seals. The new covenant is a sealed deal. You can't undo what Jesus has done. He's made you his bride, you can't undo that. His blood is infinite, it's eternal, it's a done deal. When God looks at you, he chooses to look and see the blood of his son and what his son has accomplished for us on our behalf. That's the new covenant. It's much like the text that we see even in the old covenant. Moses, after he makes the covenant, it says in Exodus 24.8 that Moses took the blood and threw it out all over the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you with these words. And in the same way, what Christ does is he throws out and spills out his blood over the church and says, this is the new covenant. It's a sealed deal. It cannot be undone. It's what I've purchased and given to you. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did Paul not care about the perfect life of Christ? Did Paul not care about the incarnation? Did Paul not care about the resurrection or the ascension or the second coming? Of course, Paul cares about all those things. 
and he thinks they're all important. But in Corinth, the cross was folly. What Paul is saying that ultimately this meal that we celebrate every week is actually about Christ's death. So the purpose of the meal is to proclaim the Lord's death. The cross is central. The cross is pinnacle inside of the redemptive narrative. And what Paul is calling us to look in and see is focus on the death. Why? Because the death of Christ brings the death to us. The death to our old nature and life to our new nature. And people are like, well, it seems so easy that, that, that it's a free gift of grace, but it's not. We love to bring something to God. We love to have something we can show for. We love to have something we can give to God. But with the cross, what it says is this. There is nothing you have done or can do or can give it has all been done and paid for you we focus on the death because through christ's death we actually have life and then he goes on into this next section and says this verse 20 27 whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the lord in unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the lord so all this terrific news this meal is a celebration all of grace. It's, it, it's a sealed deal. It's done. We have unity, humility, and celebration. But now you need to know two things about this meal. If you drink it or eat it or take the elements in an unworthy manner, it will bring judgment. So either this meal brings healing or it brings judgment. And here's what we mean. He says here that if you drink this or take this in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty. So in other words, is so what, what was done to Christ on the cross will be done to you if you take this in an unworthy manner. We call this language fencing the table. And, and he, here's what it is. is the, the biggest reason that we fence the table is because it is a loving thing to do. By going and taking communion, you are declaring that Christ is my all and my everything, that I've put my soul, trust, and faith in Him. And by doing it, what you're actually doing is drinking judgment on yourself because you're declaring a lie that's not yet true for you. And so we stop people from taking this that that's not true for them. It's actually for those who have been put their trust and faith in Jesus and I believe have walked in the obedience of baptism and then they stepped toward the table and they take communion. But the other reason is if you're someone who has unrepentant sin in your life, not someone who's wrestling with sin in the context of community, but unrepentant sin you're walking in, I don't believe you should take this meal. I believe so is drinking judgment upon yourself because what you're actually saying is the cross is central to my life. But what you're actually doing is saying, actually what I want is the forgiveness and, and, and grace and love of Jesus, but I want to keep something else central to my life instead of the cross. And so in a sense, what you do is you live a life inconsistent to what you're declaring by walking to the table. It's a big deal. It's a big deal if you understand the judgment language that Paul is using here, that you're drinking judgment on yourself. Like the, 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 there's a sobering reality to this. Look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So there's this examination process that, that takes place. We are to examine ourselves. And, and, and he gives us the context in which we're to examine ourselves. Look here. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, not what the actual element of the body is, but actually the body of Christ. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so what we're called to do is we're called to examine ourselves in context of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called to examine ourselves and see where we're at and what it looks like to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and to see if there's any unrepentant sin, any unforgiveness and bitterness in our hearts. It's a big thing to walk to the table knowing that you have bitterness, unforgiveness, and unrepentance in your heart towards a brother and sister of Christ and go up there and say, yep, 
I will take of these elements and I will celebrate all that Christ has purchased for me, but I'm not going to extend it to you. Over and over again we see in Scripture that those that are not willing to forgive others will not be forgiven for themselves. Will not be forgiven themselves. And so here's this. That Paul goes on to say this in verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Oh, wow. (laughs) What does he mean by this? I, I, I believe that it means quite literally that God's discipline or God's judgment can come through being ill, through being sick, or through dying. We see this with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 8. The God of the Old Testament wasn't mean and wrathful, and then he became nice. God's consistent. He's the God of faithfulness and grace in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but he does enact judgment. And sometimes that can come through sickness. I don't believe this. Please hear that this is meant to get us all caught up on every illness that we have as somehow related to sin, because that's not a reality, too. We see that in the Gospels. And it actually says, if you read on here, that that if the judgment comes like this, it's actually in discipline. Here's what I think we need to see. Let me share this briefly. I believe this meal can bring judgment, but it can also bring healing. And here's what I mean. Growing up, I had a very unhealthy relationship with my father that grew into more and more of an unhealthy relationship. On into my 20s, my father and I's relationship was extremely strained. And I've shared with you guys and and with our church family what some of that has looked like in years past, so I won't focus on all of that this morning. What I will say is, is there was a lot of bitterness and hurt and unforgiveness in my heart that I had towards my dad. And I flew, uh, I was living in Reno, Nevada and flew into Portland to take a class up there and my mom called and said, hey, your dad's not doing well. You should consider coming home. And so I went home and I got to spend the last week of my dad's life, in a sense, taking care of him. Uh, He was dying from cancer. And I was someone who uh, was on uh, heavy sleeping medication, prescription sleeping medication, all different sorts of medications to try to get my body to sleep at night. I was just, just very unhealthy in, in so many ways. And what started to happen is that after I got saved is the cross started to bear on my life. And the elements that we take don't actually bring healing themselves, but what they do is, is, is take us to the ultimate healing that we've received through our own forgiveness with God that Christ has provided that we didn't earn or deserve. And so I asked my mom if she could leave the room and I could have a few moments with my dad. And I looked at my dad, and for the first time in my life, I looked at him and said, Dad, I I want you to make eye contact with me, which was a big thing for him. And I was like, I want you to know that I forgive you for all the things that you've done. And at that point, my dad broke eye contact with me, which was a big thing for him. And I said, I want you to know that I love you, and I'm proud of you. I think you did the best job you could. Here's, Here's an honest, true story. From that night on, I've never taken prescription medication again. And from that moment in, in, in my life, I feel like I actually was able to forgive someone and let go of bitterness because I started to understand the amount of forgiveness that Christ had given me. And, and, and I believe, and I'm not the only one, science is proving this as well. John Hopkins Medicine did a review that studies have shown that the act of forgiveness can reap huge rewards for your health, lowering the, the risk of heart attacks, improving cholesterol levels in sleep, and reducing pain, blood pressure, and levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. Dr. Karen Swartz, the director of mood disorders 
um, from the uh, adult consultation clinic at the John Hopkins Hospital says this, chronic anger puts you into a fight or flight mode, which results in numerous changes in heart rate, blood pressure, and immune response. Those changes then increase the risk of depression, heart disease, and diabetes, among other conditions. Forgiveness, however, calms stress levels, leading to improved health. Part of what Paul can be saying, and part of what we would recognize is this, is that for some people, you have grown weak and you have grown ill. When we don't offer the same forgiveness that Christ has given to us, to other people, those are things that can make us sick and those are things that can make us ill. And so Paul closes out the section and says this, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. What is he saying? In the same way that we have this meal that is symbolic for for, uh, unity and humility and celebration, it's the same meal that reminds us that the deal is sealed. It's the same meal that brings together Um, healing. It's the same meal that brings together unity. And the way that it does that is when we start to offer the same sort of love and grace and forgiveness toward others that God has given to us, including our spouses, including our brothers and sisters in Christ, and including those outside of the church. There were torn relationships in Corinth. There were torn relationships now. And what he's calling us to do is to love radically. Let me say this in closing. I believe this meal is symbolic. As we're getting ready to go take it now, I can go ahead and invite the worship team to come up and close us out. Jesus uses a lot of symbolic language. He talks about the flock. He talks about the bride. He he calls himself a shepherd and a vine. I don't believe any symbolic language diminishes what happens here at this meal. I believe this meal is symbolic, but it is the most powerful, in a sense, picture we have week in and week out at the local church gather assembly of all that Christ has done and all that he's provided for us. And it's meant to pull us in to see that and see this is something that we share equally with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. God, you are good and you are faithful. We recognize, Christ, what you've provided. Let us celebrate it now. Amen.